0: Hello, and welcome to the Green Tea Party,
1: where we discuss conservative solutions to environmental problems. My name is Hannah Rogers.
0: My name is Zach Torby.
1: And I'm Katie Zakresky. Together, we will guide you through
0: complex issues and provide strategies to address them, all while remaining faithful to our conservative values.
1: Oh, and we'll have fun while doing it, too.
0: Yeah, it's a
1: party. So grab your mugs, and
0: we'll pour the tea.
1: On today's show, we have a special guest. In fact, it's our very first guest, so we're super excited. Today, we're going to be chatting with the amazing Chelsea Henderson, Republic EN's Director of Editorial Content, and the host of Eco Rights Speaks podcast. Zach, how are you doing this fine day? Are you excited to speak with the incredible Chelsea Henderson?
0: Yeah, I've been listening to a lot of the Eco Rights podcast, learning a lot feel like they have a lot of interesting views on. Looking forward to learn from an excellent interviewer herself.
1: And Katie, I know that you've been following Chelsea Henderson for a while. You must be over the moon about today's episode. Uh, you
0: better believe it. Usually I pull out my soapbox. I think our listeners are going to be shocked to discover that I'm almost stunned into silence. I've been reading Chelsea's newsletters for like 7 7 or 8 years now, so this feels like one of the greatest crossover episodes of my life. I'm still in disbelief that we're we're all together right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is just kind of a dream come true, and we are super grateful. So the Eco Right Speaks podcast is a project of Republic EN, which helps conservatives navigate the climate conversation. So they kind of do what we're doing today. That's why it's awesome to have her on here today. Republic EN believes that nobody should have to sacrifice their conservative values to protect the environment and our future. Our conservative values are not only part of who we are, they're key to effective climate solutions. Chelsea is a seasoned environmental policy professional who has worked with lawmakers, government officials, and a wide range of stakeholders On both sides of the aisle to develop and implement effective climate and environmental policies. She's passionate about bipartisan solutions to complex issues and has a proven track record of success.
0: In her free time, Chelsea is a talented writer and yoga instructor. She's a devoted mom to her two teenage sons and loves spending time with her family and friends. She's a graduate of Boston University and a proud native of California and Maine. She currently lives in the Washington, D.C. area. Chelsea is a valuable asset to the Republican EN team and a respected leader in the field of environmental policy. Welcome, Chelsea, onto the show. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Oh my God, thank you guys so much. I just have to say, you made me blush a little during the (laughs) intro. I am the one that is in awe of what you all are doing. You are the next generation. You are the one that is most saddled with the climate problem. So I'm just so excited to see your efforts to reach out to your peers and to be an active part of the solution going forward.
0: Well, I mean, folks like you helped pave the way in areas like this. So we're we're really thankful for the precedent that you've set, and we hope to really follow that. It's a tough act to follow, so
1: <laughs> we're, we're thankful to have you.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, we're going to put a big bronze statue of you outside of the official Green Tea Party radio office to commemorate this moment. (laughs) 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 Fabulous. Well, Chelsea, we we know that you're a, a conservative working in the environmental sector. And so we wanted to talk with you a little bit about some of the environmental work that you've done as a conservative, some of the things that you've seen over the years, and a little bit more about what got you into the environmental movement.
2: Yeah. Well, actually, like most people who end up with entry-level jobs on Capitol Hill, I fell into the environment because those were the issues that they needed somebody to cover. (laughs) And so (laughs) I started off my career in the office of Senator Susan Collins. I was a staff assistant. I was answering the phones. And one of our legislative correspondents left. That's kind of the next step on the ladder she handled all the environmental issues. And so I started taking over her portfolio. And then in the meantime, I was looking for another job. Like most people on Capitol, (laughs) i am like, you get your job and then you're always looking for the next one. And I had interviewed for a position on the, the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, which at the time was headed by the late Senator John Chafee, Republican from Rhode Island, I ended up getting that job. I think in part because for, you know, three months or something, I'd written some letters about the environment. And then I got to the committee and really had to learn about the environment because there, you know, it was just such a deep dive, it really sparked a passion. This time period was before I think all of you were born. <laughs> so it was kind of the <laughs> mid to late 90s. I'm going to say the attitude was a little bit different then. There was a lot more cooperation on the environment committee. My first really big, issue that I was handed was Everglades restoration. That was a really super bipartisan effort. And it was also an issue that we worked very closely with the state of Florida, which at the time was led by Governor Jeb Bush. I was traveling to Florida all the time. I had Jeb Bush's stuff on my speed dial. At the same time here, Vice President Al Gore was a big supporter of Everglades restoration. So you had this really interesting dynamic where you had Vice President Gore pushing for Everglades restoration, Jeb Bush pushing for Everglades restoration. Oh, then Gore and George W. Bush were running against each other for president. And literally the day we signed this bill into law in the White House, I got to go to that ceremony, was the day that the Supreme Court ruled on Gore v. Bush.
1: This is an ABC News special report. A nation waits. Now reporting Peter Jennings.
0: Good evening everybody. I'll make it quick and simple to beginning. The Supreme Court of the United States has reversed the decision of the Florida Supreme Court on three separate issues that were before that court. But get it in your mind first of all, the Supreme Court of the United States has reversed the orders of the Florida Supreme Court on a very narrow majority. Five justices to four. Five voted to reverse and four voted not to. Jack Ford, you've been listening to this.
2: Those first few years of working on these issues, I just saw how you could put aside all the other politics to get something done when there was consensus that you you had a problem that needed solving. And you didn't have to agree on everything, and you didn't have to agree on everything outside of the spectrum of what you were working on. You could put all the other stuff aside. Jeb Bush in the White House with Bill Clinton, Al Gore, like while all this is unfolding, you know, on the presidential election stage. That was kind of my big like aha moment. We can do hard things. We can do hard issues, even if we don't agree 100% on everything else around us. Fabulous. That is amazing. I also did a similar job
1: for Senator Lee a while ago. So you talking about that. I'm like, Oh, maybe I can have an amazing career in the future. Like Chelsea Henderson has a follow-up question to that is, do you feel like things have changed since then, the conversation around environmentalism? Do you think, feel like things have gotten more cooperative or less cooperative, or how do you feel like things have changed since your early career?
2: So most of my experiences with the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, not the current chairperson and ranking member, but prior to that, you had Senator James Inhofe from Oklahoma, kind of most known for bringing a snowball to the Senate floor and denying global warming. And then you had Senator Barbara Boxer, very liberal, California, and they kind of toggled back and forth between who was chair and who was ranking member of that committee, but they had a partnership for a number of years. And they could put aside their differences on climate change, for example, to work on infrastructure, the infrastructure side, the public works in the Environment and Public Works Committee name. That was kind of interesting to see when you look at the people who were on the committee on the Republican side in the 80s and the 90s. So Backpedal a little. I just wrote a book. It comes out next year, August of 2024, called Glacial The Untold Story of Climate Politics. So I did a lot of looking back over the history of different climate legislation and when did we start talking about climate change on the Hill. And in those days, the Environment Committee was full, whether it was a Democrat or a Republican, full of really committed environmentalists. And then something happened in the sort of mid 90s where After the contract with America, there is a shift toward deregulation. And so the people that came onto the Environment Committee, I'm not going to say they were anti-environment. They were just about doing the environment in a different way, perhaps. We live in a very binary world. And so I do think like a little bit more polarization happened. Senator Chafee almost lost his chairmanship before I worked for him because he was considered too moderate on the environment. So something did shift. We know that some of the division, the divisiveness is amplified by the media and that in our hearts, I think 80% of us agree on 80% of stuff. The fringes are the loudest. I think we're rebuilding and your work toward that, the Generation Z's work is really important toward rebuilding us to that sense of cooperation and bipartisanship. But I don't think it's how it used to be. It definitely wasn't the way it was when I worked on the committee in the 90s and the early 2000s.
0: Chelsea, you mentioned that you've been able to see this growing gap, I guess, where the political parties stand. There's a a bigger political divide now maybe than there was before, and some of this has been sensationalized by the media. And a lot of conservatives seem to think climate change is a fluke. Conservatives shouldn't be involved in climate change because it's just a, a liberal hoax to make money off of individual Americans. What, in your opinion, makes climate change a conservative issue?
2: One thing that has really struck me is this transition to a clean energy economy. We should have the right as Americans, for example, to put solar panels on our house and to tap into the sun, which nobody owns, in order to generate energy. There are some states that regulate how much you can use or how you can use it and so It's a little cliche to say, put the conservative in conservative. But there is that element, right, of like being cautious and wanting to do things that we know are going to be, that are going to protect the earth. Like having an insurance policy, for example, is conservative. Being a little risk averse, especially when you have the irrefutable evidence now. It's not just climate change isn't just this future thing that is going to happen. It's happening. We're seeing climate change set the conditions for more extreme weather and whether it was the fires in Maui recently, just wildfire seasons in general, more intense hurricanes, flooding, those kind of things. But also look at home insurers in Florida and California In Florida, especially many of the home insur- insurance companies have left the state. You all are young. <laughs> Let me just tell you, you probably don't <laughs> own property yet. In order to secure a mortgage for your home, you know, when you secure a mortgage, the bank owns the home until you've paid it off in 30 years or however many years your mortgage is. The bank has made an investment. They believe in you because of your credit worthiness and your job and everything. The bank requires you to have home insurance. And it is actually paid as a portion of your monthly mortgage. So I never have to write a check or you know Venmo, (laughs) the insurance company. It just comes out as part of my mortgage payment because it's the bank's investment. They want to protect their investment. What banks are going to give mortgages to people who want to buy homes in Florida if there's no home insurance in Florida? We're talking about an issue that isn't just an environmental issue. It's an economic issue. It's a public health issue. It's an agricultural issue. It just spans all the sectors now. And so to me, it is inherently conservative to look at something like that and say, wow, there's really a problem. Congressman John Curtis from Utah always says, we have to be at the table or we're on the menu. Coming to the table and making sure that you, you're not just at the table to say no and to not just keep passing the potatoes down and the su- sweet potatoes and whatever because you don't want them. You actually have to bring your own dish. You have to bring your own solution. You know, where we come in at Republican.org is to try to say, hey, there are some free market um, solutions out there that uh, conservative economists say will work. By the way, you know what? People on the left will will buy them into them too. So that's, I think, really important is to just make sure we, we are out there with our own solutions and are really being part of the conversation.
0: I think you just highlighted the fact that it's a generational issue as well. And we've seen that in a lot of studies that a lot of young conservatives under 45 are concerned about, The impact of climate change on their own livelihood. You know, you just mentioned a lot of young people. As you get ready to buy property, buy a house, start a family, you got to worry about mortgages, insurance premiums, things of that nature. With factors beyond your realm of control (laughs) that are that are now like part of your own daily battle.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and you know, I'm the mom of a 19 year old and a 21 year old, and my 21 year old says I don't that he doesn't know whether he wants to have children because he wants. To see kind of what happens over the next 10, 15 years and not leave a world to a child that is, you know, on fire, so to speak. And that is, you know, being not very literal, yeah. but this is something that you all have experienced since the day you were born. If you were born, I think it's after um 1986, you have not ever experienced a cooler than average month and that's looking at global temperatures so maybe where you lived there was one month that was you know cooler than two years prior or whatever but looking at the global temperature averages you have not experienced a cooler than average month since somewhere in the mid 80s i don't have the year the exact year off the top of my head but that's significant that means your whole lives you've been experiencing climate change you've learned about it in school you know i didn't learn about climate change until i was well into my career And you probably learned various stages of climate change throughout your elementary, middle, high school, and obviously college education.
1: Yeah. As you're talking about worrying about whether or not you want to have kids, that's something that is like very personal to me because I grew up with a big family and I always wanted to have a big family of my own. I'm here out in Utah and everyone here has lots of kids and stuff like that and That's something I've always wanted, but I feel very robbed of that because of climate change. And I worry about if I had children, what their future would be like. So I have another question for you. When it comes to conversations around climate change and having these really effective bipartisan conversations, what mistakes do you see people either on the left make or people on the right make when they're trying to kind of communicate their feelings around climate change in a way that's gonna be receptive to the other side?
2: I think the biggest mistake that people make in climate conversations is one, coming off really condescending. And you know what? I do it. <laughs> Two, just trying to cite a bunch of science, right? I'm not a scientist. I might have a few statistics in my head or whatever, but Catherine Hayhoe, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, always talks about finding the common thread with somebody and having that conversation. You know, for her, it's her faith right so she has conversations with people who she shares her faith with and talks about you know god relying on us to protect this earth that he has made for me that's not an authentic conversation to have because i don't have a religious upbringing or background for me i might be able to have a conversation with somebody for example the insurance stuff that we talked about earlier i'm a homeowner my kids want to be homeowners i'm i believe that homeownership regardless of your income, is a sign of wealth, and it can be a sign of generational wealth. So owning your own home, and then if you have children, that's a sign that your children will be economically better off if your parents own a home. So that's something that's really important to me. And so just watching whether or not my kids might be able to do that, you have to find where that common thread is. How do you connect with somebody? I have a friend, for example, who's a super, super vegan, and she's vegan because she doesn't want to eat beef, especially, and she's never eaten beef as long as I've known her, but she feels very strongly that this is a way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is by, by going vegan. And she's so preachy about it to the point where I'm kind of flexitarian, <laughs> like I'll eat anything. I mostly try to buy locally sourced foods, including, you know, meats and stuff. But if I'm at a barbecue that has impossible burgers, I'm going to eat the impossible burger, whatever. And so I find myself like kind of not wanting to share meals with her, even though I'm very committed to wanting to solve climate change because I don't like the way she comes at it and is sort of judgy on people that are having a hamburger. Like, let me enjoy my hamburger. So I think you just have to have these conversations in a way that is respectful and that is also just like I said, finding that common thread. We all f- can find something that we have in common with other people, but also knowing when to walk away. We're not not going to change everyone's minds. And this is something that weighs on my executive director, Bob Inglis. Super, he's talk about superheroes. Bob is our superhero at republician.org, former congressman from South Carolina, from what he would call the reddest state in the union. And in 2009, when he as he sees it, you know, kind of had his, his epiphany on climate change and introduced a carbon tax bill. The voters of his district didn't take too kindly to that. He got primaried and lost like hugely in the primary. Bob travels the country and he talks to everyone. He goes to boys states and talks to high school students. He goes to rotary clubs and talks to older generations. Like he talks to everybody. And he always comes back from his travels. And he can't get the person out of his mind who was skeptical, right? Or who he didn't, wasn't able to convince. And it's so heartwarming to me because I can just see that he really does want to bring everyone over. But there are some people you just kind of are going to have to cut bait. You know, they have their own sources of information and news that they're listening to. And maybe you said something that in a month or two months or six months, you go back and, and something will trigger for them. But, you know, you can't change everyone's mind.
0: Chelsea, you've mentioned the importance of how you breach the conversation of climate change, particularly with conservative audiences. Is there a certain climate policy or environmental policy that you in particular feel drawn to, like carbon pricing or solar panels? Mm -hmm. I guess what's your meat and potatoes when it comes to climate policy? Yeah,
2: I think there are sort of two lanes that I see. There's definitely um, personal responsibility. So my friend who's gone vegan or I have solar panels on my house, I bought a Prius 13 years ago that's still running strong, but when that car decides that it has seen its last mile, I will definitely get an EV. I live in an urban area where I can, with a lot of infrastructure, I can make that work for me. And so there's personal responsibility, but I do think there has to be some market signals. I definitely support pricing carbon. republician.org we talk about a revenue-neutral border-adjustable carbon tax. So that means the revenue, you know, we, we tax it upstream, we tax it where the, the carbon emissions are made, and the revenues from that are not going in to fund a, you know, Department of Conservation, right? They're not going to fund some expansion of the federal government. They're going to reduce a payroll tax or maybe go back to, to homeowners, not homeowners, go back to Americans as a rebate, as the CCL, the Citizens Climate Lobby Plan envisions one of those options, but you have to have that price signal. I have to pay to take my stuff to the dump, right? If I cleaned out my basement tomorrow and I had old paint cans and maybe some no longer functioning light bulbs or those Christmas tree strands, I always save them (laughs) and take them to the remediation center. And I have to pay to do that, right? So why shouldn't those who are burning fossil fuels have to pay? for the carbon pollution that they are emitting into the atmosphere. I really do believe in carbon pricing as the best and most effective way forward. And then on top of that, I think it's great when people take on personal responsibility as well, kind of having both those lanes going concurrently, I think is going to be really important, especially because we have to advance the pace at which we're doing things. If we really want to see solutions that will benefit your generation and your potential kids' generation.
0: What politician do you think best represents the environmental conservative movement right now espousing these policies in a way that the average listener can understand?
2: Yeah, I think Congressman John Curtis has just really been a breath of fresh air You know, he came into Congress, he was relatively new to Congress, but has made a big splash. Obviously, Katie, you're from Utah, you probably were familiar with him before he even went to Congress. He was the former mayor of Provo. And apparently when he was mayor, he used to ride his bike to work. So, you know, personal responsibility. But he very quickly identified, and he, he says that he represents the youngest congressional district in the country, which I think then just ties back into the importance of the work you're doing. He recognized this is an important issue, especially especially for younger voters, and saw that the Republican Party wasn't really leaving a place for younger voters to turn to if they're climate voters, right? If if climate is an issue that they are prioritizing, how they're going to vote on. And so he's taken it upon himself to be a leader. He is the founder of the House Conservative Climate Caucus, which numbers over 80 members now, I think, and has invited everyone to come in so there's no litmus test there's no you had to have to have introduced a bill or co-sponsored a bill if you're curious if you're climate curious he wants you in and that's so that they can have briefings they can do things to maybe bring the eco hesitant along and that's what we should be doing you know we we aren't going to get anywhere by shaming people who've not engaged in the issue before or who maybe don't consider it a top priority yet, we have to show them that it is a priority, and we we have strength in numbers, right? So I think that the work that he, that Mr. Curtis is doing in the House is just extraordinary. And you know, in the Senate, you have a lot of different voices right now. I'm I'm really interested to see what um, Senators Kramer and Cassidy are doing with the border adjustment part of carbon pricing. This would be imposing some sort of carbon tariff at the border for products that aren't made as environmentally friendly as our products are here. And steel is a great example of that. U.S. steel is cleaner than most, I'm going to exaggerate, it's cleaner than all the other steel in the world. That might be a little hyperbole. But when you're competing against other country steel that isn't made with the same environmental regulations as ours, we lose, right? making countries that don't have the same policies that we have kind of pay at the border for the fact that they don't have those policies. I think a really smart. And so they're building support for that measure, the CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. I think that's really important. Good to see efforts happening, right? Gone are the days where people, where climate deniers just have to find those policies that will bring people together put aside our differences because no one party is going to solve this issue. We need both sides coming together and finding that point where we can agree and then kind of moving forward from there. Chelsea, I'm, I'm from Utah and Representative Curtis is my representative
1: and I've gone on a few hikes with him where we talk about climate change and he brings along the Republican lawmakers in Utah and climate scientists. I admire the enormous amount of gentleness that he has with these people who are not as familiar with climate change. That's something that I'm trying to carry into my career as I'm engaging in this field as well. So I'm really glad that you mentioned Representative Curtis because he's by far my favorite.
2: Yes. And I'm sorry I attributed Katie as being the Utahn, but it's you, Hannah. So it's yeah. Okay. I, I'm I'm from the deep South.
0: We've got the uh, <laughs> the bio and y'all have got the mountains, so... <laughs>
1: Yeah, I should start exaggerating my Utah accent, my mountain and stuff like that.
2: (laughs) But you're right, Hannah. He is very kind and gentle and thoughtful. I think he's thoughtful. And we've gone on hikes with him, too. I think we did our first one of our first hikes. This is a, a formula that we've sort of embraced is going out with a lawmaker in their district, doing something outdoorsy, bringing in local scientists, either from local university or any research institutions and then local conservative leaders and a few members of the press, if the lawmaker is amenable to that, and just having a conversation. We have to talk. Going back to what Dr. Hayhoe says, we have to have these conversations. And so we have to start somewhere.
1: I am so glad that other people are doing that because I had no idea if people were doing that out of Utah, but hearing you talk about that makes me feel so happy. We have just a few more minutes left. Chelsea, your book is called Glacial, correct?
2: That is correct, and yeah. it's, it's coming out next year. What month next year did you say again? August sixth, twenty twenty-four is target publication date. I have been meeting meeting all my deadlines, so hopefully that won't slip. And it really tells an interesting history. And I maybe I should ask you all a question and see if you can get the answer. Who was the first president to be briefed on climate change? I want
1: to say Nixon.
0: I, I kind of want to say Nixon too, and if not Nixon, I want to say Reagan. So for the sake of diversity, I'll go Reagan. If you go Nixon, Nana.
2: <laughs> I'll say Nixon. You say Reagan. Which one is it? Zach.
0: I'll go Senior Bush.
2: LBJ. What? What? <laughs> oh. Okay, so we're Thank off. <laughs>
0: Wow. we're a generation
2: off. <laughs> I mean, 1965 LBJ was briefed about potential future impacts of the greenhouse effect, as they called it. Then they said by the year 2000 these scientists that we would have rising sea levels, more intense hurricanes, droughts, all the things that we're experiencing. You
0: must say they were right.
2: <laughs> they were right. And he did what most people do and confronted with a potential new crisis. He commissioned a study. So then there was a big study that was done. Yeah, it's really crazy to me. That was before even I was born. <laughs> so, Wow. Yeah. You know, it's crazy because I feel like this ball has been
1: rolling for a really long time. Sometimes when I get a little bit discouraged and get a little bit stressed and worried and anxious about climate change, I just have to look back at people who have done this for years before me and be like, you know, I'm just part of this really <laughs> big, amazing movement that I'm so grateful to be a part of because I feel like I'm I'm very much called to it. And I wouldn't really want to be doing anything else with my life but protecting the planet for the people who are going to inherit after me, right?
2: It's like a big baton. We're just all passing the batons around and we're all in it together. And I think it is important to have the generational um, representation. And so again, I'm so grateful that you're engaged and working with your peers and talking to peers. And I just wish you all the best of luck with this show. I know that you're gonna touch a lot of listeners. Just grow grow the movement. That's what we need. Absolutely. Chelsea, did you have any other book
1: suggestions for us? I know we talked about your book, but did you have any more for our listeners?
2: Yeah, I was actually going to say, if you are interested in the history at all, Losing Earth is a phenomenal book. It really covers the 80s. That was the point when Congress, especially in the Senate, they started to get engaged in what is this problem and what should we do about it? And there was a lot of bipartisanship in how how members of the Senate were looking at the issue of the greenhouse effect. So Losing Earth, it's pretty short. And if books aren't really your thing, there's a long-form New York Times Magazine story that I think preceded the book. So Losing Earth, the author, Nathaniel Rich, New York Times reporter. And then one other thing that I would recommend to everyone is One Green Thing by Heather White. Um, So Heather is a friend of mine, and she has been a guest on The Eco-Right Speaks. She worked for Democrats on the Hill. We worked on a lot of issues where she was the Democrat and I was the Republican. She wrote this book, One Green Thing, which breaks out your climate activism into sort of different archetypes. There are like little tests and stuff, and you can figure out what your superpower is. And then she gives you tasks. Are you the philanthropist? Are you the spark? You know, you're the influencer. You figure out what you are, and then it gives you ideas of things that you can do to feel empowered because. Climate change is a really big, significant global issue and no one person can solve it and no one person should carry the burden of having to solve it. So what it does is it kind of breaks the issue out into what are you good at and how can you move the needle and empowers you to do that. So one green thing, really phenomenal if you want to look for a more active way to get engaged, losing Earth if you're looking for some history. And of course, glacial next year mark your calendars or I'll come back I'll come back and talk to you at that point <laughs> yes come back
0: onto the show <laughs> please come back on
2: the
1: show also we're gonna let all of our listeners know next year when it comes out we're gonna put on our website everything yes
2: <laughs> i also tell my publisher that they'll be really happy yes
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> okay so for our listeners please email us with your thoughts and please also start following Chelsea. She's incredible. She's been very influential in all of our development in climate action. Please email us at info at Share this episode with a fellow conservative, young or old, anyone. We just want to get more people involved in our community. We're airing on college radio stations and you can find Green Tea Party Radio wherever you can get your podcasts. We really want to reach a lot of people. We're building a movement, so we need your help. Chelsea, how can people find your podcast?
2: So the Eco Right Speaks is on all the normal places to download a podcast, Apple, Google Play, Spotify, that's the Right Speaks. And we just entered our seventh season in August of 2023, so we're super excited about that. And then Katie has spoken so warmly of this newsletter that I write, if you want to get the <laughs> newsletter, go to republicen.org, join us, sign up to be a member of our community, and you will get the Friday Climate Weekend Review, where I summarize the week's kind of best news with a conservative focus. You know, we don't spam you when we get your email. We don't send you 20 million emails a week. It's that email on Friday. Once a month, we have a poll. And then any webinars or anything like that that we're doing, which happens like quarterly, you get another email, but it's really, we're not one of those organizations that's constantly sending you messages or asking you for money. We do not do those things. I try to make it fun and and informative at the same time.
1: Once again, thank you. I just just admire you so much. I'm so grateful to have been able to just spend, you know, the hour that we've had you on the show. It's been seriously so wonderful. And to have people give us time like you, it means a lot to us and for our show. I was about to say,
0: if you told me eight years ago when I signed up for this newsletter that we would all be on the same show someday, I don't think I'd have believed you. So this has <laughs> like, been absolutely surreal, like I said earlier. So thank you so much again for coming on the show.
2: Well, yeah. my pleasure. And I'm going to turn it around and have you all on this show. So. <laughs> yes, Let's, <laughs> go. Let's go! Thank you,
0: Chelsea. <laughs>
2: Thank you for listening
0: to Green Tea Party Radio, and a very special thank you to all of our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. If you're interested in getting early access to episodes as well as Green Tea Party Radio merch, check us out at greenteapartyradio.com. If you have feedback, tell us what's on your mind, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, and TikTok. So
2: okay, healthy. I was you gonna say we gotta cats. do the pet question. Yep, the yeah. pet question. Do gotcha. you have any cats? <laughs> I have, I do. Woo! Cat club. Yeah. Yes, I have two cats, Fang oh and God. Fluffy. Oh, they like, are like Harry Potter. Like yes, Potter yes. I, oh I usually goodness. have to explain it, but what's funny is that Fluffy is the short-haired one, and Fang is <laughs> super long hair, like part Maine Coon cat. And so they're named after Hagrid Stocks for those Harry Potter fans. My kids named them. They're 12 years old. They are they follow me around wherever I go. In fact, Fang is sitting here watching me record and she's like, why are you not on the couch watching TV with me right now?
1: <laughs> I love that. You know what, we should have like a running number of how many pets end up on this podcast. I background. was about to say, every
0: like social media promo post just needs to be a picture of our guest of pets. <laughs> 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 it just be like, what, what more motivation do you need to listen to this show?
1: Yeah, I mean, mean? I started out this show with, like, nine cats, and now I'm down to two, so. Yeah, because your
0: neutered male cat spontaneously decided to reproduce, like, bacteria exponentially.
1: (laughs) The shelter gave me a pregnant female cat and told me it was a neutered male cat. Oh, my God. And it gave birth in my bed, and it was, (gasps) it's too funny. (laughs) Wow. I know. It's okay. Just just a little prank.
0: A little bitty prank.
1: Yeah. We love having you. You're amazing. Chelsea, I, I literally admire you so much.
2: You guys are amazing. If you're ever in the D.C. area, let's get lunch. We can talk more. Whatever. I'm on you my way. Do. I'm getting a
0: flight right now.
2: <laughs> like I'm on my way. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> awesome. No, I'm serious. And we'll figure out a time to have you guys um, all come on the show as well. I think it would be really fun. Please
1: uh, do. So I easy. love podcasts.
0: This is easily one of the top five greatest days of my life. <laughs> I can't,
2: I can't even really, believe like, this. I can't I'm even believe this. That's <laughs> like an ego
1: bump right now. <laughs> I'm like, absolutely stunned. Coming, coming on our show is an ego bump for us, so...
0: I I literally I I can tell you where I was when I subscribed to your newsletter I was right by the fountain on my college campus and I was like I'm just a sad little conservative who loves the environment and there's nobody who thinks like me and I found your newsletter and I was like frantically subscribing from every email address I had so this has been absolutely unbelievable
2: thank you Conservative and concerned about climate change? You're not alone. My name is Chelsea Henderson, and I host republicen.org's EcoRight Speaks, bringing you weekly guest interviews and stories. John Kasich, Christine Todd Whitman, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, meteorologist Marshall Shepard. Each week, we have a conversation with an EcoRight leader, bringing you information, opinions, personal stories, and much, much more. Download, listen subscribe, and join us each week on the EcoRight Speaks.